Thank you. Uh, welcome to Living Hope Church. If you have children that are uh, headed down to Children's Church, they can dismiss uh, out the back right now uh, with Miss Melody. Uh, for those of you, if you have children that are staying here, uh, there are activities on that back table that they are free to grab. There's also a sermon notes designed for them that goes along with the sermon. Uh, they can grab that and take that back to their seat. There's a bingo game on there. If they get that done, they come see me. I'll have some candy for them. Uh, well, today we are uh, beginning a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount that I am uh, excited about. Uh, we walk through life making assumptions, and sometimes these assumptions can be false, and false assumptions can lead us down the wrong path in a hurry. False assumptions can be made in the world, they can be made in our families, and they can be made in our relationship with Jesus. For example, there are some of us that assume that if we just ignore problems, they will go away. Uh, we hear that rattle in the car and we just ignore it because we don't want to deal with it and we hope and assume it'll go away. But I don't know about you, but that has never gone away. It's only gotten worse. And false assumptions aren't just made in the everyday life, but they are made in the church and by those that follow Jesus. Right, we can spend a whole sermon, we can have a whole sermon series uh, talking about the cliches that people assume are true and assume are from the Bible. And these cliches like God will never give you more than you can handle are not only false, but they can lead us to shaky faith. And so when Jesus shows up in Matthew chapter 5 and where he begins his ministry, there were many assumptions that were being made by the people and by the religious leaders. Many of the same false assumptions that we make today. Primarily the belief that activity, religious activity, equates to godliness. And that worldly success and man's approval equates to God's approval. And Jesus shows up here in Matthew chapter 5 and he gives the Sermon on the Mount and he crushes their false assumptions. And he flips many of their beliefs and our beliefs of faith upside down. And so throughout this series, we're going to study Jesus' words on what truly matters, on who it is that is blessed, on how to live our lives and how to experience eternal life and truly follow him. Some brief background on the Sermon on the Mount. It is found in Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7, and it begins, it's from early in Jesus' ministry. At this point, he's been baptized by John the Baptist. He has gathered his disciples. He has been tempted in the wilderness, and he has begun to heal people on the streets of Galilee. And at this time, he is starting to draw quite a crowd. They want to come see the show, see this miracle worker. And this sermon serves as the first of five major teaching discourses by Jesus in the book of Matthew. And it is the longest recorded discourse or sermon of Jesus in the gospel. I love how uh, Daniel Doriani described the Sermon on the Mount. He said that among Jesus' teachings, the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most beloved, the best known, the least understood, and the hardest to obey. And so with that said, in this sermon, we are series, we are going to seek to understand Jesus' words, and I pray implement his teachings into our church and our lives as well. So we're in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Matthew writes, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He, Jesus, said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to gather and to study your word, to learn more about who you are and how it is you call us to follow you. God, I pray that you would just open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us today. God, I pray that you would 
uh, reveal maybe areas in our lives where we are following false assumptions. God, pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would open their heart and their mind to their need for salvation, their need for forgiveness. And so, God, I just pray that you would uh, speak through me and you would use my words to reveal your truth this morning. And it's your name we pray. Amen. So we begin this Sermon on the Mount, of course, on the side of a mountain. Uh, and one of the interesting things that we see about Jesus and we see throughout the Gospels is that people were attracted to Jesus. It doesn't say here that the disciples started an aggressive advertising campaign the week before and then people gathered at 5.30 after work on Monday night. No, it simply says the crowds were following him, so he went up on a mountainside, sat down, and his disciples came to him. And we see that people are still drawn to Jesus today. They're still curious about who he is. People are intrigued by this man whose words and life are still impacting our world some 2,000 years later. But what we will see in the Sermon on the Mount and what we see uh, in life is that interest, attendance, and even knowledge of Jesus does not necessarily equate to being a follower, and it does not equate to salvation. We'll see that theme in today's message and throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and that's our first point today. Interest, attendance, and knowledge alone does not necessarily equate to being a follower of Jesus. We talked about in the introduction, but we live lives based on assumptions we make. And the assumption of many people then and many people today is that to be a follower of God, all you have to do is show interest, attend church, and gain book knowledge. But Jesus is going to tell us it's got to be so much more than this. And this overarching false assumption is going to be challenged time and time again in the Sermon on the Mount. And I would encourage you as we go through this study to, to pray and ask God to reveal any blind spots, any false assumptions in your life where you are trusting in your wisdom or the wisdom of the world instead of God. And so Jesus here, he, he gathers the people and he jumps into this sermon and, and he jumps in with what we call the Beatitudes. Your Bible might even have the heading Beatitudes above it. And the word Beatitudes simply means blessing or to receive the approval of God. And it comes from the word blessed that we see time and time again in these first eight verses. So today we're going to look at those first four and then next week we will look at the next four. And this word blessed here, uh, it appears perhaps in your translation as happy. And blessed or blessed can mean happy, but blessed here, I mean, I believe, means so much more than just momentary feelings of happiness. Jesus here is talking about the blessing of God's favor, the perfect peace that only God offers, the shalom, the complete peace and confidence that only comes in trusting in God and God alone. So we get the first beatitude in verse 3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's talk about flipping things upside down. In our world, poor is never seen as a good thing. For many of us, poverty is our greatest fear. Poverty means the inability to provide for oneself and the need to depend on the charity of others. We hate the idea as strong, self-reliant Wyomingites. We want to provide and we want to carry our own weight. And yet Jesus here begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. How could poor possibly equate to blessing? Well, poor here, it means exactly what we think it means. It means to cower or cringe. It refers to the beggar who is so poor they cannot support themselves. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? How could that be a blessed thing? Well, to be poor in spirit means to acknowledge your spiritual poverty. Your spiritual bankruptcy before God. Your complete lack of spiritual resources. 
Quite simply, to be poor in spirit means to recognize your sin and declare your dependency on God. And so that's our second point. Point two is blessed are those who recognize their sin. To be healed, you must first know what you need to be healed from. You must first have to know that you need to be healed. We live in a world that says there is no absolute truth, that says to follow your heart and your feelings, and that everything is good and everything goes. And in that, there are many that don't believe they are sinners, and they don't believe that they are in need of any help. But you can't be saved, you cannot be healed, you cannot be forgiven if you don't recognize your need for saving. Think about cancer. You can't be healed. You can't be treated for cancer if you don't first recognize, you don't know that you have cancer. And while a cancer diagnosis is distress, distressing and it is scary, when you receive that diagnosis early on in the cancer's development, it can really be good news because you know what you have and you know how to begin receiving treatment for it. The true threat is that when you don't know, when your doctors don't recognize the cancer and it continues to grow and grow until it eventually spreads all over the body. The recognition of the cancer makes way for treatment and healing. In the same way, the first step to experiencing salvation, to experiencing forgiveness, to experiencing eternal life in heaven, in Jesus, is to recognize our sin and to recognize our need for saving. The poor in spirit know they are sinners, and they recognize that they have no righteousness on their own. They recognize that they are not equal to God, and they cannot work their way to him. They're like the tax collector in the temple in Luke 18, 13, who cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it is the poor in spirit. It is those that recognize their sin that will inherit the kingdom or inherit heaven or eternal life. You cannot inherit eternal life if you don't first recognize your sin and your need for salvation. Last March, my wife, Melody, she completed her final treatment for thyroid cancer. That day that we had received her diagnosis of cancer a couple years prior was one of those days that shakes you to the core. But looking back, it was also the day that the doctors began treating her and working towards healing. We must first know we are sick before we can experience healing. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do here. Came to do here. And he says that in Matthew 9. In Matthew 9, he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He said, I've not come, call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. So the poor in spirit who seem like they have no future, Jesus actually says they have the most glorious future of all. Jesus says those who are perhaps losers in the sight of the world, they gain everything in the end. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit who recognize their sin. So this first beatitude teaches that salvation is by grace. It is through Jesus. We are all sinners in need of salvation. So do you fall short of God's righteousness, the perfection, the sinlessness of God? The Bible says we all do. But the good news is that when you recognize your sin and then confess your sin to God, then Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is yours. Jesus came to save sinners just like me. Blessed are those who recognize their sin, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Once again, Jesus here, he gives us a circumstance that we would feel pity for, and yet he calls it blessed. How can mourning possibly coincide with blessing? Happy are those who are sad. Like, that doesn't make any sense to us. 
But Jesus here is not pronouncing a blanket blessing on all people who mourn for anything. But rather, he is uh, he's pronouncing a, a blessing over a particular group of people who mourn for something specific. Remember, those who mourn are the same as the poor in spirit. If the poor in spirit are those who confess their need for God, then those who mourn are those who grieve over sin. The word translated mourn is a strong word in the Greek. It's used for the mourning of the loss of a loved one. That deep sorrow you feel when you lose someone you love. That's the kind of sorrow that Jesus says we should feel for our sin. A.W. Pink describes this mourning as the agonizing realization that it was my sins that nailed to the cross the Lord of glory. So those who mourn are those who grieve over their sins. So point three is this. Blessed are those who grieve over their sin. Jesus says blessed are those that recognize their sin and blessed are those that grieve over their sin. Again, we live in a world that says that right is wrong and wrong is right. And so there are many that may recognize or or feel their sin, feel their shortcomings, but they have bought into the lie that sin isn't that big of a deal. Or perhaps they might even bought into the lie that sin is right. I had lunch with a guy a, a couple years ago. He was asking me about church and asking about what we believed and asking about the gospel. And I explained to, it, his, to him as clear as I could. I explained that we are all sinners, but Jesus came and he gave his life so that we could be forgiven. And in that conversation, he was really talking about his friend who had uh, sinned and, and people knew about it. And, and this friend was afraid that the church was going to turn on them. And so I explained to him that a church that believes the Bible, that believes in grace and offers forgiveness, uh, offers, offers forgiveness to that person if they recognize their sin and repent. Like that person is always welcomed back into the church. Like that's what we foundationally believe. As, as Bible-believing believers, we believe in grace. We believe in forgiveness. In that conversation, he expressed how great that was and how he had misunderstood what church is and what the gospel was. And then how conversations often go, he began pouring out his life to me. He started telling me about all of his life, about his history, about how he grew up. He started telling me about these specific sins in his life. And then with every sin, he would also express a justification of why it was okay. Or he would tell me about why the Bible was wrong in that area. And so this man clearly recognized his sin. He could tell me about it, but he felt no grief over it, and he felt no need to be forgiven. And so it's not enough to just know that we have sinned, but Jesus says we must be broken over and recognize that our sin is a big deal. We must recognize that our sin is a slap in the face of the God of the universe, and it separates us from his holiness and his presence and perfection. One of my favorite hymns is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And it so beautifully captures this truth in the second verse. It reads, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished, his dying breath has brought me life, and I know that it is finished. So we not just need to know that we are sinned, we know that it was our sin that held Jesus there. It was my sin that held him upon the cross. It was my sin that he died for. It was my sin that he suffered for. It's a personal thing. My sin has consequences, and that should grieve my soul, and it should lead me in search of a Savior. And then once I've found that Savior, it should make me eternally grateful for what Jesus has done for me. The Bible tells us the wage of our sin, the consequence of our sin is death and eternal separation from a holy God. 
That is a big deal, and it should break our hearts and leave us searching for him. Our sin should grieve us, and it should lead us to bow and ask for forgiveness from a holy and perfect God. We see many examples of this in the Bible. Isaiah, Isaiah, he went before the throne room in a vision of God, and when he saw God exalted on his throne in absolute holiness, he cried out, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The Apostle Paul showed this in Romans 7, 24. He cried out, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Do you recognize your sin? And does your sin lead you to mourn, to grieve, and to seek God? But our grief over sin, it goes beyond just our personal sin. I, I love how Ray Fowler, he said this in his passage on, uh, sermon on this passage. He said, but then we grieve not only for our own personal sin, but also for the sins of others, the sins of the world. We share the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 119, who wrote, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. So we grieve over our personal sin, but we also grieve for this world. When you see the world living in sin, when you see your family member, your friend, your coworker living in sin, does that lead you to grieve for their soul, for the souls of the world? Or does it lead you to scoff at their foolishness? But there are many in the Christian world that scoff at the folly of the world, and they celebrate when the world suffers due to their sin. There are many in the Christian world that ridicule and complain about the sins of their neighbor and celebrate when they face the consequence of their sin. But they don't grieve for their souls. They don't pray for their salvation, for their eternity. If you are a follower of Jesus, then I would guess you quite clearly see the sins of our world. But what is your response to that? Do you scoff? Do you judge? Do you celebrate the world's defeat? Or is your heart broken for their soul? Broken for their sin? Does it lead you to pray for them? I believe that the proper response to sin in our life is mourning. And the proper response to the sin in the world is mourning as well. When we see sin in our life and when we see sin in the world, we should be led to pray to the God who heals, forgives, and comforts. When we see sin in the world, we should be led to pray, and we should be led to point those people to the one that loves them and offers forgiveness for their sins. Because Jesus says, those that grieve for sin will be comforted. Those who mourn will be blessed because they will be comforted. Jesus says, they will be comforted. And in Greek, this is, we're going to see this throughout the passage, but this is known as a divine passive. I know that's exciting. But a divine passive simply means that it is God himself who comforts. 2 Corinthians says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and I love this, and leaves no regret. 1 John 1 9 reads, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins, and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. It is God who forgives us of our sins, who cleanses us from our sins, and one day he will completely remove all sorrow and sin from our lives. Revelation 21.4, our hope says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Blessed are those who mourn, for God will comfort them. So that's the first two. Blessed are those who recognize their sin, and blessed are those who grieve for their sin, because God will forgive them and he will comfort them. Verse 5 says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Again, Jesus uses a characteristic that we would not necessarily celebrate. Blessed are the meek, 
Now, when I hear meek, I think kind of small, I think dainty, I think quiet, maybe lacking initiative. I think of kind of like the little church mouse in the corner. The meek are not who we celebrate or who we follow in life. So how and why is meekness blessed? Who are the meek? Well, whereas poor in spirit emphasize dependency on God, mourning emphasizes sorrow before God, meekness emphasizes submission to God. The meek are those who humbly submit to God and others. So that's our next point. Blessed are those who submit to God and follow after his ways. D.A. Carson writes, the meek man sees himself and all others under God. Matthew Henry describes the meek as those who quietly submit themselves before God to his word, to his rod, who follow his directions and comply with his designs and are gentle toward men. One of the best definitions of meekness that I've found is submitted strength under control. The example used is that of a horse that has been broken. A horse that has been broken is still plenty powerful, but it has now learned submission. It has learned to submit to the direction of the leader. Whereas the young colt runs wild in its power, the broken, meek horse uses its power for good, for the benefit of others. It uses its power to pull the carriage, the plow, or the rider. So meekness here doesn't mean that you are weak, but that you use your power to serve others. You use your strength and submission to God and in service to others. The humble who serve and value others in God are the people that we want in our families. They're the people we want in our business. They're the people that we want to follow. Jesus said, blessed are we who submit to God and value him and others above ourselves. Why does Jesus say that the meek will be blessed? He says they will inherit the earth. Here Jesus is quoting Psalm 3711. Psalm 3711 uh, reads, The meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. And Psalm 3711 is originally referring to the promised land, but Jesus, as he often does, takes that Old Testament and he expands it to cover the whole earth. Again, this is upside down from our world, isn't it? The world thinks the strong and the aggressive will inherit the earth. But Jesus says, no, it will go to the meek. Those who submit and follow my ways. And we see this ultimately fulfilled, as we saw last time, in eternity. The Bible tells us that one day God's going to return and he will renew the earth. And we, as followers of Jesus, will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. It will be those who submitted to God and experienced his salvation that will inherit the earth in eternity with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, When the kingdom of heaven descends, the face of the earth will be renewed. And it will belong to the flock of Jesus. Jesus says, if you recognize your sin, if you grieve over your sin, if you ask him for forgiveness and life and submission to him, then you truly have a great future and a great inheritance to look forward to. The world may scoff at you, they may mock you, but if you submit your life to God and his ways, then the future, Jesus says, is better than you can imagine. So do you live your life in meekness? Do you live your life submitted to God, living for his glory and the benefit of others? Or do you live your life seeking your glory, your power, your priorities, and your benefit? Jesus says, blessed will be the meek, those who submit and follow him. All right, last one, verse 6. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Again, Jesus says, blessed are those who we would deem least blessed. Never would we equate those that are hungry and thirsty with being blessed. 
Instead, in life, we equate those who are full, those who are satisfied with being blessed. We pray and we thank God at mealtimes when we know our bellies are about to be filled. But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for right living with God. So that's our final point. Blessed are those who thirst for God. In our culture, there are few that are truly hungry and thirsty. When we are thirsty, we don't walk miles to the well, but instead we simply turn on the faucet or we crack a bottle of water. Water in our culture is abundant and we take it for granted. In the same way, there are few, few that are truly hungry in our world, in our culture in America. Our big question is not will we eat today, but instead what will we eat or where will we eat? But Jesus' audience, it was familiar with hunger and thirst. They knew what it was to crave uh, food and water. They could relate to the statement in a way we just can't. Jesus says that we will be blessed when we crave God in his ways, like the one who is starving or desperate for the water craves food or water. When you are in that state, there is only one thing on your mind, and it is either food or water, whatever you are desperate for. Jesus says, blessed are those that seek God with that kind of desperation and single-mindedness. The poor in spirit know they are not righteous on their own, so they long for Jesus' righteousness to fill their lives. They long to pursue Jesus and live their lives as, as he leads them to live. The poor in spirit long for Jesus' righteousness in their lives, and they long for his righteousness to fill the world. And Jesus says they will be blessed because they will be filled. They will be satisfied. I love that. Jesus says they will not just get a taste, but they will be filled. And again, that's our divine passive, which we've seen, and that is that it is God himself that will fill them. You and I cannot achieve righteousness on our own. We are sinners. But the Bible says when we ask, it is God who fills us, and his righteousness is a gift. It is God, through Jesus' work on the cross, that will fill those who submit and hunger for righteousness. Have you ever had those moments where you're just really hungry and and you, and you felt that satisfaction of being filled. Jesus, that's what he will do. A few different times in life, I've gone on a multi-day, multi-night backpacking trips. If you've ever gone on a backpacking trip, it's beautiful. But no matter how much dehydrated food you take with you, you always come back starving because of the amount of energy exer exerted and the lack of quality food. And there is nothing better than that first meal back in town. It is always so satisfying to taste real food again. And you're just filled in a way that dehydrated food just doesn't cut in the backcountry. And Jesus says those who thirst for God will be filled, and they will be satisfied in that way. We see that described throughout the Bible. Psalm 109 says, God satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. And uh, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The Bible says in Jesus alone, satisfaction, righteousness, and eternal life are found. Do you long for God's righteousness, God's will in your life? Do you hunger and thirst for his ways? If not, Jesus calls you to seek and desire his ways above all. And when you do, the promise is you will be filled. So these first four Beatitudes, they go together. We see a progression as we recognize our sin and seek after God in his ways. All four of them, they point to the reality that we cannot earn God's favor in our own strength. But instead, it is God who saves. It is God who fills. 
and God who comforts despite our weakness and sinfulness. The Beatitudes, they challenge the assumptions of our life, and they teach us that God's blessings rest not on self-sufficiency, but on the poor spirit. God's blessing rests not on the self-righteous, but on those who mourn. God's blessing rests not on the self-reliant, but on the meek and submissive. And God's blessing uh, rests not on the self-satisfied, but on those who hunger and thirst for him. So as we wrap up and Melinda comes to play, where do you find yourselves in these first four Beatitudes? Where do you find yourself living in the assumptions of the world as opposed to the teachings of Jesus? Perhaps you're here today and you recognize for the first time that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. If that's you, would you surrender your life and ask Jesus for forgiveness? Ask him to be the Lord of your life. Right? Jesus says, if you do, you will be forgiven. You will inherit eternal life. You will be comforted. You will be blessed. These first four Beatitudes can be summed up in a simple but life-altering prayer that can be prayed by both that one that needs to believe and the longtime believer. Lord, I need you. I am sorry for my sin. I will follow you. Please help me to grow to be more like you. Or maybe you're here and you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. Where, where in these four Beatitudes are you believing like the world as opposed to Jesus? Have you slipped into the lie of believing that sin's not a big deal? Have you found yourself scoffing at the world's sin as opposed to grieving and pointing them to hope? Have you found yourself pursuing you and your power and your wealth and your success as opposed to God's ways and his will? Or maybe you've found yourself just simply thirsting for you or something the world offers as opposed to God's righteousness. If that's you, would you just repent? Would you ask for forgiveness and seek God as opposed to yourself? Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who saves sinners like me. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that has not ever followed you, Lord, that you would just open their eyes to the reality of their sin and the divide and separation that creates between you and them. God, I pray that you would break their heart and that you would break each of our heart over our sin and that we would seek you in your comfort and your forgiveness. God, I pray that you would reveal those areas in our life where we are seeking ourselves or we are seeking worldly pursuits. We are seeking our ways as opposed to submitting to you. God, I pray that you would make those things clear. That we would have the courage and strength to turn to you and, and seek your ways and submit to your ways as opposed to our own. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people that thirst and hunger for you that thirst and hunger for your ways and your righteousness in our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to submit and follow you all the days of our lives. So God, I pray in these next few moments as Melinda pray, plays and we reflect, Lord, that you would just reveal yourself to us, that you would break our hearts of the sin in our lives. God, and that we would submit and turn our ways to you. So God, I pray that you would speak to us as Melinda plays. It's your name we pray.
God, we thank you that you are merciful and you're mighty to save. God, we thank you that you love us and care for us and that you have made a way for us to be forgiven and to spend eternity with you despite our sin. God, I pray that we would seek after you this week. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, just a couple of announcements before we go. Uh, first of all, if you're new to Living Hope Church, there should be a welcome card somewhere in the area of you. If you don't mind filling that.